Hello. Hello. Yes. And hello. Hi. Hi, Victor. Hi there. Oh, we got this figured out. We're all connected now. Um, so Outstanding. Very good. Um, we're not rolling just yet. The recorder. We'll let you know when we actually start the recording. Cool. Uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show tonight. Uh, we do have a few questions for you. We're shooting for about a total time of a half hour. Um, My pleasure. To to get the total uh, interview time. Um, so it's it's great to have you. Uh, very much a privilege and an honor to have you on the line. Um, do you kind of have any any questions for us before we dive into the interview? Uh, not right offhand. I do have a warning, and that's that I'm chronically I have chronic head congestion, and I may need to blow my nose periodically. I'll try to cover the mic. <laughs> all right, hey, that's no <laughs> problem at all. We, okay. we this is not live. We will edit it and make you sound Excellent. like make, make make you sound like a million bucks. So fear not. Uh, we are going to mainly you know. Um, talk about the dinosaur lords and um, have you talk about the book and maybe how the how the book came to be um just kind of highlight some of the things that you've done before you have quite a prolific writing career so we'll probably just cover a few points on that um but really just introduce i think a, a new generation of readers to to who you are um I, I had not heard of you until the dinosaur lords came out but i've since then uh, thoroughly done a background check on all the things that you've accomplished and I'm quite impressed and, and uh, glad to have somebody of, of your writing prowess uh, join us on the show. It's, it's a privilege. So, um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see here. Just going over a couple of my notes here and make sure I've got everything cleared up and then we'll start the recording. Um, so how it's going to work is um, I'll just say three, two, one, and then I'm going to introduce you, and then we'll, uh, it'll take just a few few seconds to give a general bio, and then I will welcome you onto the show, and then we will just go with the interview and shoot for a time of about 30 minutes, and then and then wrap it up, and then we are going to air this episode next week, and it will be a syndicated episode. This is actually going to appear on two podcasts instead of just one, um, cool. so you're, you're going to get a ton of exposure to to a, a, a couple of audiences. So it's very cool. I've already been in contact with your new. Um, publicist and tour as well to let them know about our ambitious plans with your with your appearance and they are jazzed about it so it's it's going to be very cool um, great yeah and philip anything on your end sir are you gonna are you ready to dive in with victor here uh oh, i'm ready uh thank you again victor for joining us today where I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about dinosaurs <laughs> thanks for inviting me <coughs> yeah <coughs> I hope you feel better also. <laughs> well, I feel fine. It's actually kind of chronic, I'm afraid. Ah, uh, okay, I see. Gotcha. Um, now, are you personal friends with, with uh, George R. R. Martin? Uh, I know oh, he, yes. Okay. Uh, I know he lives in the Albuquerque area. Actually, he lives in Santa Fe, and I live in Albuquerque. Oh, okay. We're about 60 miles apart. Okay. But I, I presume that you've been friends with him for decades, probably. Decades indeed, yeah, okay. since about seventy nine. Okay, oh. he is he is one of the the main core authors that we cover because we cover Grim Dark and we consider. I reckon <laughs> <laughs> we consider George. Uh, we call him Papa George, uh, just because we 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 hold him in high esteem as far as it comes to Grim Dark. So we might ask you a little bit about Papa George as well. Well, that's uh, cool. He gave me the chair I'm sitting in now. Oh, very cool, awesome. <laughs> so yeah, we'll probably talk about wild cards a little bit too. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm ready to I'm ready to dive in. If you guys are ready to go, we'll do this and I'm ready. Uh, and we're we'll get the dinosaur lords uh, on the air. Oh, have you done a podcast before? Never, 
Never. So first ever podcast. Yep. Awesome. Well, you've accomplished so many things. Now you've got the uh, podcast achievement unlocked. So <laughs> I reckon it's about time. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Well, let's let's do it then. <clears throat> and uh, three, two, one. Uh, a professional writer of fantasy, science fiction, and more for over 40 years, our guest has published over 100 novels, including the Prometheus award-winning novel The Cybernetic Samurai and its sequel Cybernetic Shogun. As a founding member of the Wild Cards Shared World Project with George R.R. R. Martin, or affectionately as we call him, Papa George, uh, our guest has penned multiple shared universe novels for properties including Forgotten Realms and Star Trek. Other credits include being a cowboy, a semi-pro actor, computer tech, and Albuquerque's most popular all-night progressive rock DJ. His new novel, The Dinosaur Lords, was released July 28th from our good friends at Tor, and the Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Mr. Victor Milan to the show. Victor, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. And this is your first podcast ever. It is. I'm a podcast virgin. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on board. I can imagine you're pretty busy with the release of the Dinosaur Lords just coming out. Um, for folks who are not hip to the Dinosaur Lords, if you could just give us a, a description of the book uh, for, for new listeners. Well, it's basically what the cover suggests. It's nice writing dinosaurs. Or as George R. R. Martin himself put it when he was trying to describe it uh, to a friend... It's like a Jurassic Park meets a Game of Thrones. So uh, that's actually as good a capsule description as I've heard. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a quite an ambition, uh, quite a sizable blurb there from Papa George to uh, give his blessing upon the dinosaur lords. So uh, that's very cool. The timing, I don't know if you guys even planned this, but to have it come out kind of in concurrence with the brand new Jurassic World movie that, that came out. I mean, everything is just kind of going for you to, to get the hype going about this book, and a lot of people are excited about it. Let's go. Actually, it was entirely fortuitous, although I probably should should credit my editor, Claire Eddy, with, with great prescience, because she's a great editor. Now, you uh, expressed some relief in uh, some other interviews ab about how long it's taken you to get Dinosaur Lords out into the world. Um, how long has Dinosaur Lords kind of been in in your brain and, and, and in process to finally get it out to, for this July release? A long time. Uh, and you guys have done your homework, by the way. I, <laughs> I compliment you. I thought started thinking in terms of it in early, I think, 2003. I, was, I wanted to do a big book. I wanted to do, frankly, what I hoped would be a breakout book for me. And I wanted to do what was the the most entertaining novel that my then almost three decades of experience and all my passion could create. And I had three candidates, and I promised that I was going to make the decision on my birthday. And on August the 3rd, 2003, I, I woke up and thought, it's the Dinosaur Lords, and immediately started working on it. So that's that's pretty much how how it came about. And the the other the, the reason it came about is well, I've always loved dinosaurs since I was a kid, and dinosaurs are cool. And I wanted to tell a story with dinosaurs. I think. Yeah, I also uh, was a big fan of 
dinosaurs as a child. I had several plastic dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. And uh, my favorite was the brontosaurus because I could swing it by its tail. <laughs> and I could pretend I could pretend it was a sword or or any kind of weapon. A versatile dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say is, is your favorite dinosaur uh, in, in all of the dinosaur kingdom? Oh, unquestionably the Triceratops. I mean, T-Rex oh, okay. is yeah. cool, Brontosaurus or Apatosaurus, and it turns out that both probably existed. Uh, you know, a lot of them. But my favorite is the Triceratops, and in fact, my personal logo is a blue Triceratops head. Oh, yeah. I, I noticed at the beginning of your novel there's a big scene with uh, several Triceratops. Um, how, how, how do you think in real life it would... Would it be easy to take care of a Triceratops? How would you take care of one? Well, gingerly would be good, I think. <laughs> uh, I that's that's one of the reasons I made one of my my viewpoint characters and one of my main narrators into what I call a dinosaur master, who is this essentially a professional dinosaur wrangler for the sort of nobles who could afford to field dinosaurs for warfare, and. You spoke earlier by being a cowboy. Actually, I and I and I was that. I was a cowboy slash camp counselor at a at a ranch in the Amos Mountains near Los Alamos for a few years, as well as having been a camper there for years beforehand. And I did learn a lot about what's required in tending to horses and cattle. And I reckoned that it would be similar, except. You know, kind of combine something the the size of the largest Indian elephant with the the temperament of a rhinoceros. So, you know, it would be arduous and tricky. <laughs> so, would would it be easy for one person to take care of a, of one dinosaur? Would you need a large group of people to keep it under control? Well, it, you know, the the idea in my universe, in my world, which is called paradise, is that the dinosaurs are basically the the animals. They're they're the Mesozoic fauna are the fauna, Mesozoic flora are the flora, uh, including not just dinosaurs but pterosaurs, flying lizards, and the marine reptiles, and that means that they're pretty much everyday everything from pets to beast of burden to food to various degrees of pests to outright menaces depending on their size and temperament so domestication of dinosaurs is a long established fact and the the techniques for doing so are relatively common but you know a, a dinosaur as large and potentially cranky as a war trained triceratops ideally is going to have several attendants being a your dinosaur master and various grooms or apprentices or whatever kind of scout work types can be can be dragooned into it uh, and the the big two-legged usually hadrosaur or duckbill beasts used for nightly mounts are uh probably in their own way even by more high maintenance because they're somewhat higher strung hmm. so you um since you're writing a fantasy and and uh, the, the blurb does invoke the 
um, shadow of Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of Thrones itself is a, is a violent series. I can imagine that uh, the dinosaur battles must get quite bloody and violent, which we're uh, admittedly fans of, being it, it's, 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 a, it's a grim, dark-focused uh, podcast. Um, how did you approach the violence in in in, in your book, the, the Dinosaur Lords? Uh, did you make it a complete bloodbath, or did you have to tame it down? What was kind of your approach with, with um, having these epic dinosaur battles? Well, I'm a long-time action-adventure writer. Uh, most of my published fiction has involved, in one way or another, adventure fiction, whether it's you know, wild cards books, my own novels such as Cybernetic Samurai, or the the books like the the Deathlands series I wrote for a long time. Uh, so yeah, I've always actually taken a fair degree of pride in my realistic mayhem. I I try to research it carefully and think about what it would really be like, and then portray a sense of it. So yeah, it's pretty no holds barred. I mean. I don't try to dwell on the gore, but it's it's a battle, and a lot of unpleasant things are happening, and you know you, you are there to see a lot of them and hear and smell them. So, um, I guess the the point is not to dwell on the details so much as it is to make the experience as vivid and. I guess to make it seem as much as the as much as possible that the reader is living it. Interesting, interesting. Now, you we did mention that uh, George did give you the, the blurb for that book. Um, in addition, the the book just has stellar cover art, and then the internal yes. artwork is just mind boggling. It's just really, really well done. Tor has has you know, spared no expense, I think, in making this book look as as making the book look as in, impressive as possible. Um, what's been your experience with, with the buzz that you, you've received so far with the book? Excuse <coughs> me. Well, it's been very good. Now, I, I just in, in passing, yes, Tor has done a wonderful job in making it a beautiful book, and a lot of credit has to go to the artist who did both the cover and the interior art, Richard Anderson, who's a UK illustrator, who apparently has done a lot of stuff for Warhammer. I wasn't familiar with his work beforehand, but the man behind the cover is Richard Anderson. Um, and yeah, starting with the release of the cover last fall, uh, the, the, a lot of buzz built up, a lot of excitement aroused by it, and then just by people being aware of what the concept was. And that's, that's continued to grow. The, the reception has been so far very good. A lot of people were excited about it. A lot of people are writing to let me know, well, I am enjoying it, or I finished it, and I enjoyed it a lot. So, I, I'm really pleased by that. Now, I will also say that while the the response in North America has been really gratifying, nothing prepared me for the response from Brazil when it was announced that Dark Side Books had acquired the rights down there. The Brazilian the Brazilian fans were enthusiastic. Let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that it's uh, you know international hit and uh i think dinosaurs are a great topic to 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 interject into fantasy worlds um one thing that's been popular for a long time in fantasy are dragons yeah. um we've had lots of dragons in in various worlds over the years um would you, would you be flattered if you noticed more fantasy writers started putting dinosaurs in their worlds instead of dragons? Or would, would you feel like 
uh, dinosaurs are kind of your thing and uh, kind of like when when uh, George Martin started uh, writing darker kinds of fantasy a lot of other people started writing darker kinds of fantasy so uh, how would you feel if other writers started using dinosaurs instead of uh, dragons or other kind of traditional fantasy creatures well I you know that'd be cool I, I don't have a trademark on dinosaurs of course and <laughs> I, <laughs> excuse me not really the jealous type I mean I think I am the, I'm the first that I know about to use dinosaurs systematically in a, a big fantasy story of this sort, an epic fantasy. I, it's not as if they haven't been used before. I understand that uh, both the, the RuneQuest RPG and eventually Dungeons & Dragons had dinosaurs incorporated into their bestiaries at one point or another. And there was also Dinotopia, which I'm actually not that familiar with ex- except for the pictures. So dinosaurs have been used some in fantasy before, and if people were to decide to make greater use of dinosaurs, I, I, I think that would be great. There was actually a cartoon when I was a kid. I think it was called Dino Riders. Oh, yeah, people have called that to my attention, too, especially since <laughs> the, the cover came out. Yeah. Yeah, that, but it was more like a sci-fi thing, and I, oh, think, yeah. the, I think, think the dinosaurs had, like, robot arms or... Or something, but it's pretty awesome for a kid. Like, whoa, wow, oh, yeah. it's robot dinosaurs. Robot dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> so I could swing around my brontosaurus figure <laughs> and have a ro- robot <laughs> robot dinosaurs fighting. Go. And you, at one point on your Facebook page, you did ask your readers if they can t- if they consider the dinosaur lords grimdark. Um, uh-huh. um, I think there was a it was kind of a heated debate as to if it was or if it wasn't. Um, I would ask you, what, what what would your verdict be as far as the Dinosaur Lords? Would you consider it grimdark? And um, also, I wanted to just highlight what what humor you you what other things that you would use in your story to to balance out the darker elements, uh, be it either humor or hope. Um, what's sort of your tapestry of storytelling that you use to to make it balanced? Well, those those were two of the things that, in fact, were adduced by my fans. Is that they said outright, "There's humor and hope in your work," and they didn't, for the most part, find that in Grimdark. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I. It was also described by another who'd actually read the book in in the submission form, a friend who who called it fantasy with sewers, which I think is does describe the approach. I try for a realistic type of fantasy. Uh, at the same time, I also believe in happy endings, that they don't all have to be happy. And if you you know, read even the first book, some people come to some mighty unhappy endings and also have some mighty unhappy middles. <coughs> but yeah, I, I myself am not... Uh, well, I also have to admit that my own personal philosophy, which is trying to be as positive as possible, doesn't always reflect itself in my fiction. A pretty dark thing does tend to happen. Some pretty dark things do tend to happen. But uh, it's... I, I try not to make it unrelieved grimness, as it were. Now, I'm not terribly familiar with grimdark fiction. I haven't read a whole lot of it, so I, I'm also not meaning that that's all it consists of. I'm sure it has its a fairly wide variety of approaches to it. But uh, I guess what I'm looking for is more just what I consider realism in the sense that it's it's something that, again, the reader can feel as if they're actually experiencing it. 
for good or ill. Excellent. So do you, do you feel like um, there are certain kinds of fiction that can be deep, devoid of hope, like have a really uh, downer kind of ending? Or do you think it's always important to have some kind of hope in every story uh, well, so, so the reader can attach themselves to some kind of positive outcome? Well, frankly, it depends on the story, even if I'm writing it. In general, I like I like positive outcomes in my own work, but <coughs> excuse me, that doesn't mean that obviously it doesn't mean everyone has to do it that way. I know there's a lot of fiction that is takes on a fairly hopeless um, worldview, I guess. And uh, in, in just in general terms, I think there's room for all of it. I myself. I'm not inclined to write a great deal of that sort. I do I do favor some degree of hope and some degree of positive outcome. But you know, it's a wide world, but I think all are welcome in it. Yeah, I think I think the only outcome that would be really sad for your world is if a meteor hit hit your world and killed all the dinosaurs well there you go and, and, and as i say it's not earth so yeah it, now that still could happen i'm not gonna I, but <laughs> i hope i hope not <laughs> that's my hope we also have a, a lot of writers who uh, listen to our show as well um so we wanted to hit on a couple of things that you mentioned before um about your writing process um you did mention that you are a part of a writing group called critical mass yes uh, could you tell us about your experience with this writing group and, and how they helped you shape the Dinosaur Lords? Well, it's been great and necessary, to tell you the truth. I uh, started going to the group. The group actually has been around since the early aughts, and I started going around 10 years ago, if I recall correctly. And uh, George R. R. Martin was, in fact, one of the founding members of the group, although he no longer was participating participating by the time I I started, but Melinda Snodgrass, who was who's another old friend and wild cards person, uh, was a participant at the time. And Walter John Williams, um, Sage Walker was in it. Uh, let me I'm trying to just think who else has, has been in it over the years. Later on Daniel Abraham came in and then Ty Frank and we got to read Leviathan Wakes. Their first book is James S. A. Corey, which was great. So, and now we've got Steve Sterling. He was actually another early member. Uh, John Joseph Miller, who's another Wild Cards original and stalwart, a good friend. And some up-and-coming writers like Matt M. T. Wright, Lauren Tafoe, uh, Serena Ulibari, and Emily Ma Tippett's or Emily Ma. So uh, it's a it's a pretty good group, and we get some very very good feedback. It's it's consistently been, and I think this is necessary, craft based. It's been towards treating writing as a craft, as a trade, and and how to do it in a way that will basically render your fiction readable, and you could put whatever load you want into it of of meaning or import or whatever but in terms of writing to be read that's largely what we've been we've been concentrating on and the group has also consistently been good about keeping egos out of the group 
and I've learned in a bit about from uh, about writing from just observing my friends, not just when my own work is being critiqued, but also watching the the other people critique other people's work. It, it it's led me to think about a lot of things, and also one that they helped me a great deal in bashing the dinosaur lords into shape, and they helped me to overcome a particularly bad habit that had crept into my writing somewhere around 2000 that I was having trouble shaking off. Uh, plus, they helped me, when it came time, to develop it into what was then a trilogy and uh, plot it out to present it for sale. Uh, they helped me plot what was then book two and three. Now it's become a, a six-book series, a hexology, through the miracle of the editor deciding the books were too long and we had to split them in two. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you've been writing for many, many years before you decided to, to join up with the writer's group. Um, oh, yeah. You said about 10 years ago. Um, so it was kind of an – so the impetus for joining was you – did you think you were kind of hitting a rut with your writing style and you needed to develop it a little bit more? Or what was the impetus to, to sign up with them? Well, it was more that I finally got the Dinosaur Lords to a point I, where I thought that it might be worth my while to, to, to bring it. I mean, for a while, I wasn't writing very much under my own name. I was writing basically work-for-hire uh, type things, like, the, for example, the books of the Deathland series published by Gold Eagle. And... That wasn't the sort of thing that would call for participation in a writer's group and would really kind of waste everybody's time. Plus, you know, I was pretty good at doing it. But when I got, began to develop Dinosaur Lords and get some of it written, I decided to accept what was then a, a standing invitation to join the others in the group. And I'm glad I did. <laughs> So you, you've been involved with wild cards and other shared worlds for a while. Um, what is your experience dealing with a shared world? And do you, is, are there rules that you have to follow to, so it's consistent between all the different writers? Or do you, do you have guidelines that you have to follow? Or is it kind of left up to you to decide what to do as far as uh, the wild card uh, world? Oh, well, in, in, in all of them, at least that I've had experience of, there, there are both rules and guidelines. Now, in the case of wild cards, uh, George and Melinda really put the project together in terms of developing it out of a long-term role-playing game uh, that we had played that was, that was run by George, in fact. It was a superhero role-playing game called Superworld. And when he realized we were all spending too much time on it, not enough time writing, he decided to try to do turn it into something that might make some money. And so George, who at that time had a fair amount of editorial experience, and Melinda, who was a, was a former lawyer, she had a law degree and practiced for a while, uh, were the ones who actually handled the transition. They came up with their ideas for for a set of guidelines and how to put together what became the Wild Cards Consortium. And then uh, the late Robert Lynn Asprin and Lynn Abbey were intensely kind enough at some convention back in the 80s, some world con, to sit down with George and Melinda and 
describe their own experiences with the Thieves' World shared world anthology, which I believe was the first. Uh, at least it's the first one I could call to mind. And most particularly, the stuff that they had learned better than to do. You know, don't do this. They, they, they were incredibly generous with their, their hard-earned lessons. And out of that came the, the consortium agreement. And the, what I consider the most brilliant part of that was simply that you, you couldn't make any major change to another character, another writer's character, without that writer's permission. On the other hand, you know, you couldn't mutilate them, you couldn't kill them, you couldn't have them buried, you couldn't, you know, have them decide on a sex change, any of that without permission. On the other hand, uh, basically consortium points, which amount to shares, were awarded to writers on the basis, and are awarded on the basis of how much their characters are used. So, along with the fact that... Uh, as, as writers, most of us were fairly cognizant of the, the need for bad things to occasionally happen to good people, to have, a, have good and engaging stories, to have drama. Uh, there was also the purely mercenary motive that, okay, well, if I, 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 I love my character, but you know, if I let him kill her off here, it's it is dramatic and also well I I get consortium points <laughs> and that's that system has worked frankly brilliantly as far as I'm concerned for for the thirty years or so that it's been in effect. Um. So, so uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say so. It still kind of has that element of role playing game because uh, you get points if. Uh, certain things happen, so it still has that flavor that it originally started from a role-playing game. In a oh way. yeah, in a way. But um, the, the the thing about consortium points is that when monies come in to the to the consortium for wild cards, if you, for example, if you have a story in an anthology, you get a certain amount of the income for that. But you're also awarded consortium points, and again, if your characters are used, you get consortium points. And there is a, another payment that's added on to that, a payout from the, the the income of the Wild Cards consortium that's based on the number of consortium points that you hold. So there's actually money involved, too. Although oh, okay. you're, you are right, there, there, there is a certain game aspect to it, the gaining points. But as I say, they're kind of like shares. Oh. And just so I heard it right, you actually played tabletop RPGs with Papa George as your DM. Oh, hell, I gave him the game in the first place for his <laughs> birthday. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, we had played some before, and we wound up getting into a fairly protracted uh, campaign of The Call of Cthulhu, which is a classic game. Oh yeah, run by, run by John Joseph Miller, and in which most of the wild carters, including frequently Papa George, took part. <laughs> and then, because I knew of because I knew of George's love for comics and interest, longtime interest in comics, uh, when the same company that did Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium Games, came out with a a superhero role play game called Superworld, right about. A few weeks before George's birthday, or a few days before George's birthday, I thought, well, swell, I'll give him that. And he liked it, and he started running the campaign, and 
we all started playing it, and that was where it came from. Wow. Speaking of role-playing games, uh, I mean, your your world is ripe for for role-playing games or or video games or anything like that. Is there any any stuff like that you could talk about uh, in the works, a uh, uh, comic series or or video game or role playing uh, tabletop role playing game, anything like that? Well, I've had some people mention interest, but uh, I I basically directed them to talk to my agent, who in fact handles the rights for all of those things, and nothing so far that I know of has has come of it, but I am hopeful. I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it would lend itself quite well to the to tabletop role-playing games or to video games uh, or graphic novels, for that matter. I, I wanted to make it especially a very, very visual story and very, very visual world. Um, and I think, it, therefore, it lends itself to those things. Oh, maybe Papa George can pull some strings, get it on a ten series, ten episode series on a HBO or something. Might be. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> now he has expressed yeah, the belief. Awesome. He has expressed the belief at at, at our local convention, Bubonicon, a few years ago that that dinosaur lords would be well suited for that. Of course, that's kind of a gimme because basically the the extended mini series treatment or limited season series treatment Game of Thrones getting is basically ideal for any work of you know novel-length fiction. Oh, absolutely. I, so. I think uh, I think they're definitely uh, there's definitely a clamoring for more uh, fantasy series, t- big TV series. So I think your world would 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 fit perfectly with uh, with what people are looking for is. You know, kind of high action. Uh, you know, it has dinosaurs in it and lots of uh, you know fantasy elements. So I think you know a movie or a TV series would would fit it immensely. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Do you still have time so for the game, Victor? I haven't done much for at least not out socially petted paper games for a long time. I do computer gaming uh, regularly. Play various various games. Yeah, what titles are you playing on the PC? Uh, well, not much on the PC except for the Shadowrun Returns game, uh, which I like a lot. The, the revival of the computer adaptations of the old uh, role-play game uh, Shadowrunner. Shadowrun, Shadowrun, I guess Shadowrun. Shadowrun, yes. Yeah, um, it, it's quite well done, and I like it. And mostly, I play on the Xbox 360. My current favorite game is Borderlands 2. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of still addicted to that. I know it's several <laughs> years old, but it's still my favorite to play. <laughs> <laughs> and any other titles you have going on, on the Xbox 360? Well, I just I just got myself Call of Duty Ghosts and have, have started playing that, and um, playing Skyrim sub, and um, oh, played most of the way through Bioshock Infinite, mm. which is a brilliant job of world building. 
although I kind of feel as if they they get away from that a little bit too much and it just merely becomes a little repetitive but at the same time there's some wonderful wonderful world building and the story overall I think is strong in that one so those so, are yeah go ahead I'm sorry no worries um, so I wanted to ask you some questions about um, uh, fantasy battles sort of um, a lot of a lot of people like to say who would win in a fight versus <laughs> this guy and this guy or whatever. Uh-huh. So which, which dinosaur do you think has the best chance of defeating uh, a full grown dragon, such as a smog or uh, along that line, which dinosaur has the best uh, fighting chance in mortal combat? <laughs> oh, holy crap. I'd really have to say realistically none of them against an enemy that can fly <laughs> and breathe fire. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the 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 flyers or were not dinosaurs but but uh pterosaurs winged, winged reptiles were could some of them could be large and formidable but they were also quite fragile not to mention failing to breathe fire and even like <laughs> a t-rex i mean you know if if smog happened to get close enough to rex for or one of the even bigger ones like uh carcharodontosaurus uh to, to get a grip on him, then it could be bad, but why would Smog ever do that? Smog can fly over and strafe you with fire. <laughs> so I, I would have to say that in, in that kind of a contest, dinosaurs would be deeply screwed. <laughs> it'd be a... It'd be a uh, they'd have to team up, maybe. Maybe a hundred T-Rexes <laughs> swarm on... Yeah, and only if you know, only if if Smog's fire was exhausted enough, he had to come down and scrap with them. Otherwise, he could you know strafe them with fire and fly back to his lair and and, and laugh while they wondered where he'd gone. So, uh, actually, I think that one possibility would something like uh, your Deinonychus, your Dromaeosaurs, or what or Raptors, as they're also called now, which is a name I like. Uh, some paleontologists object, but a lot of them like it too. Anyway, uh, they were the, they're kind of one of the go-to scary dinosaurs in my book. Uh, they were about 10 feet long, feathered, very active, and weighed about the size of a full-grown male. They weighed up to about 150 pounds, or as far as they know. And in my book, anyway, they're pack predators and are fairly intelligent. So, you know, if they... If they manage to lure Smaug or another dragon down low and leap on him from above somehow, then they might be able to do him some serious hurt. But that's there. Th- there's a lot of ifs involved in that equation. <laughs> yeah. And as far as um, as writing goes, um, you've been doing this for a long time. You've written many, many words, released many, many books. Philip and myself are kind of newer to the industry, so we've only kind of been around pu- publishing for a few years um, in a more professional sense. I just wanted to ask you if you could just kind of give us your perspective on maybe how the publishing industry has changed over the course of your career, maybe contrast and compare how things were when you started versus how they are now and kind of maybe your your hopes to see how, how, publishing, how the publishing industry continues to grow uh, from this point on. Well, I think one of the, the biggest changes, and it's something that the, the publishers themselves have not fully assimilated, is the rise of e-books 
and the potential for self-publishing. Uh, for a long time, the publishers have basically held a bottleneck over aspiring writers. I mean, they you know, you, if you wanted your your work to achieve a larger audience, you had to go through them. And while if you could make the cut, which in large part is is luck. I mean, a lot of that's involved. I think ability and persistence count for something too, but luck honestly is a big part of <coughs> whether you get the chance and and what happens with it. But with the rise of the ability to to self-publish and self-distribute your stuff, the, the rules are slowly changing. Now obviously the publishers do offer a number of advantages, such as uh, professional quality editing, which in my experience you don't always get from publishers, although I must say I have absolutely for Dinosaur Lords. Uh, you get the artwork and the marketing and so on, but again, they've done wonderfully by me for Dinosaur Lords, but a lot of my friends have not been so lucky, and a lot of my past works have, have not been so lucky. So I think, I'm not sure how things are going to develop, but I think that the um, the nature of the industry is going to shift power a little more in favor not just of the 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 writers but the readers. I mean, another a, a tremendous thing that that has been done for both writers and readers, I think, is in terms of backlist through ebooks, especially. In the old days, you're you're. If you wanted a book, you had to get one that was either in print while it was in print, or you had to get it in a used bookstore. And neither might have been possible. Plus, if you get it in a used bookstore, the author doesn't get any royalties. And nowadays, if you convert a book to ebook form and make it available through Amazon or Smashwords or what have you, that any time a reader wants to buy a copy of it, they can. And I, I think that's that's wonderful, and certainly something that's very attractive to all the many professional writers I know. Rather than having your stuff have a mayfly life and then vanish and be hard, if not impossible, to find anymore. And as a reader, I like it because if I find a series that's that's years old, or if I find a book that's that's years old and I want to read it, um, when I find that it's available on Amazon for a few bucks and at a very click, you know that that that's great news for me. An, an, an example, just one of the books I'm reading now is an omnibus of um, Alexei Panshin's Anthony Villiers novels. That's called um, New Celebration. It's a collection of his three books in that particular series, and they're classics, and um, I wanted to read them and wasn't sure where the my, my Dead Tree versions of them were, so I was ecstatic to find them in a, in, a, in a Kindle edition, which I'm reading now. So just just that alone for writers and readers, I think, is huge. Yeah, that that was a big thing for me. Um, I've been trying to get into some writers that haven't had as much uh, 
exposure to the mainstream. For example, Jack Va- uh, Jack Vance is someone who's brought up a lot, and he's my favorite writer. Uh, and and I've definitely been trying to get into him. And I think they've released a lot of his old his dying dying Earth stuff uh, under new names. Yeah, uh, as as ebooks. So that's been definitely cool to see. Uh, people like uh, Jack Vance or uh, Wagner, who did the Kane yeah. series. Uh, his stuff was hard to find. Also, I think it was like a hundred dollars for a for a hardback. Um, but a lot of this is getting re released now. So, are there are there any authors that you could suggest to uh, to people that may people may not know as much about that? Uh, that kind of influenced you uh, early on or even today? Well, to start with, I, you know, Jack Vance is, in fact, my favorite author. And in terms of being able to read his books online, the Spatterlight Press, I'm not sure why they call it that, is making available all of his works over time on, in ebook form, and you can buy them there. So people who are interested in the ebooks of Jack Vance, and I, I would recommend you look into them. He wrote a number of things, fantasy, science fiction, and the occasional detective novel for which he won awards, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So he was a major one. Most of my, most of my big influences were uh, fairly well-known. Roger Zelazny, who wrote my very favorite book, Lord of Light, and was also a friend and a Wild Cards contributor, uh, eventually. Obviously, he's not best known for that. <laughs> Um, I I took a lot of inspiration from his books, and I still love reading them. Uh, Robert A. Heinlein was a big influence on me. Uh, Tolkien was one. Actually, what you may not have heard of is a fantasy writer, Fletcher Pratt, who was also a historical writer. He wrote a book, a fantasy called Well of the Unicorn, that is is quite good and not often remembered today. Uh, someone else, Paul Anderson, who was a science fiction, Paul Anderson, mm. science fiction and fantasy writer who died about 20 years ago, I think, uh, was, a, was a brilliant writer and did, did some stuff that's well worth looking up in both those genres. So I'd, I'd suggest them if people are looking okay. for new writers to try. And by the way, Paul Anderson's first name is P-O-U-L. He was a Danish immigrant. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. I've seen it around, and yeah, actually, I wasn't I think sure it's if it was kind of Paul or Paul Anderson, but I just say Pool because it's simple and I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even pronounce my own name strictly most of the time. <laughs> I'm going to bother with this. <laughs> Well, Victor, it's been so great uh, getting able, being able to connect with you tonight and talk about the Dinosaur Lords. Uh, just a couple quick questions, and we will have you on your way, sir. Uh, book two and book three, how, how is the series uh, progressing so far? Uh, what, what, what are the titles? Um, what, what's in the works for uh, the, beyond the Dinosaur Lords? Well, uh, actually, they're progressing very well. I've I'm still in the process of rewriting to editorial notes for book two, which is called The Dinosaur Knights, although I was working on it today, and I'm, I'm really pleased with it. Uh, there wasn't, there's not a lot of, 
of revision doing, but I'm doing a lot of cleanup stuff that just is time consuming. And the third novel, which is about half written, although it's going to have to be extensively rewritten, um, is called The Dinosaur Princess currently. And it's going to take things in a bit of a new direction, although it's, you know, it's the survivors of the original two book and a continuation of the story. Then there's the the latter half of the Hexology, which I hope Tor sees fit to buy based on the, the performance of, of the earlier books. And um, then I'm also working on developing some, some side projects the one that I've been most involved in recently is one that I I consider a Lovecraftian techno thriller, um, similar in um, similar in nature to Charles Strauss's Laundry Files, which I'm also reading now and love a lot. Um, my own approach would be that that in this case, gods, specifically the old Aztec gods, have returned to the planet and are kind of making quite a seed of themselves because they were some unpleasant <laughs> creatures. Talk about talk about something that lends itself to grim dark. <laughs> yeah, they, they were fueled basically by human sacrifice. The the gorier the better. Well, that's. But it would be it would be their intrusion into what amounts to our modern world, and I'm intrigued by that theme and would like to play with it. So that's that's the that's the major side project I'm working on now. Excellent, excellent. Well, the Dinosaur Lords is available now in bookstores everywhere. Uh, where can people find you online, Victor? I am at uh, www.victormalad.com, and my blog is found there, which is usually updated a few times a month. I haven't done it recently because I've been running around doing all this other stuff to do with the book. I'm also on Facebook as Victor Milan and on Twitter as Victor Milan. And if you, you know, do a search for Victor Milan on either of those, I'm not that hard to find. Excellent. Well, best of luck with books two and books three and the hexology of the Dinosaur Lords. Uh, people are in for a real treat when they check out the book. Victor, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. It's been much. Uh, it's been a total blast. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank and, you for having me. And three, two, one. That's where we will cut the interview there, and we'll throw.